Father, we want to thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved it all these years. That can speak into the life of your church. I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I want you all just to sit right back and you're going to hear a tale. A tale of a fateful trip. It started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate, he was a mighty sailing man and the skipper, brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a a three-hour tour three-hour tour. The weather, it started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. And if it wasn't for the courage of the fearless crew, yeah, the minnow would be lost. Minnow would be lost. Well, the ship's aground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilgan and the skipper too. The millionaire and his wife There was the movie star, there was the professor, and Marianne. They were all there on Gilligan's Isle. But then the millionaire chimed up. He said, wait a minute, you don't don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about anything. I am a millionaire. I'm a multimillionaire. I have a lot of money. And the rest of the group, they just kind of looked at him and said, what are you talking about? We We are stranded on a desert isle. There's no phone, there's no lights, there's no motor cars. There's not a single luxury. It's, it's like Robinson Crusoe. It's, it's primitive as can be. But the millionaire said, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. I am a millionaire. I earn $200,000 every month and I go to church. Well, the professor being a man of logic and science, he said, well, wait a minute. If you go to church, then why did not God rescue us from being stranded on this island? And the millionaire said, no, you don't understand. You're missing my point. I am a millionaire. I earn $200,000 every month. And I go to church. And I tithe. My pastor will find me. This morning, we have to have the talk. Now, if you were a bunch of teenage boys and I was your youth leader, we'd have a talk about the birds and the bees, which would just set you off as very awkward. But many times we have to have the talk in church about money and tithing. And so that's what I want to discuss this morning. And we haven't broached this topic in almost, well, a little over three years. We haven't talked about it. And this morning, it might make some of you feel a little bit uncomfortable. There's nothing that I can do about that. Sometimes God's truth is a little uncomfortable. Sometimes conviction is a little uncomfortable. So we're just going to go right into this. We're not going to pull any punches. Well, maybe you think, well, why do we have to talk about money at all? Why do we have to talk about tithing at all? Well, the Bible talks a lot about money. In fact, probably more than you 
you think or believe. In fact, if you go through the Gospels alone, one out of every ten verses talks about money and our possessions. 66% of all the parables Jesus taught were about money. There's over 2,300 verses throughout the entire Bible that address this thing called money. That's five times more than verses on prayer, and that's five times more than verses on faith. It talks about money. So if, if you feel like I'm poking you this morning and, and, it, and it hurts a little bit, well, nobody knows it's going to hurt, unless, of course, you sit there with kind of a sour puss on your face and everybody's going to know. So just kind of, let's just, let's just engage this, because actually what the Scripture teaches about money is freeing, and it's grace-filled, but it calls us to certain things. So let's go right to Leviticus. Chapter 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, the word tithe in the Hebrew language has a literal translation meaning tenth. So if we read this with that literal translation, a tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, when we think of this idea of tithing in the church, we, we, kind of, we kind of fall into this idea that it's about giving back to God. God has given us stuff, so we want to give back to Him. But see, that's not true. Everything in the world that has ever been, is now, and will ever be, everything belongs to God. Everything. Everything that we have belongs to God. And yes, you might have physical possession of it, but that can change really quick. And it's only by God's grace that we have anything or everything or the things that we have. And we are not commanded to give anything back to God. We are commanded to return to him what is already his. This is not gifting God in some way. This is giving back to him what is already his. You can't command somebody to give you a gift, but you can command somebody to give you back what is yours to begin with. And so that's the definition of tithe, returning back to God what belongs to God. Now, for the average Christian who gives, they give about 2% of their income on average. There are about 3% of all Christians in America that actually engage the biblical principle of tithing on a regular basis. So there's 3% of all Christians that attend church across America that return back to God what is his under the biblical definition of a tithe. And over 50% of all American Christians, they don't give anything at all. Over 50%. God calls his people and he says, listen, I have given you 100% of everything you have. All of it I have given you. I have lent it to you. Return to me what is mine. Return to me the tithe. But obviously there's about 97% of all Christians, they struggle with it. A tithe, 10%, really? No way that's going to happen. 
And we can come up with many different excuses, reasons. But this is what God tells his people. Malachi chapter 3. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I I love that. What, What he's saying there is, if I changed, I'd probably kill you by now. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now the people that are being spoken to in Malachi, they, they feel, they believe God has left them. They, they're asking God, where are you? Don't even love us anymore. In the beginning of the book, God's like, what do you mean I don't love you anymore? He said, well, you know, they're complaining there's no justice, there's, there's no blessing. God, why did you leave us? And, and, the, and the, the, the flavor of the whole book of Malachi is God going, no, no, see, you, you don't get it. You have all walked away from me. I don't walk away from you. You have left me. If you return to me, then I will return to you. And they've done it in many, many different ways. But here, God is calling them out on something very specific. He tells the people, you're robbing me. You're stealing from me. They're like, well, how how are we doing that? Well, you're robbing me what is mine, of what is mine, by holding back the tithe and the offering. And and, and again, this is the rub that that we all kind of wrestle with. That, that we believe we're giving God a gift, like saying, hey God, thanks, thanks for a great week, here's your tip. And, and so we just, we just kind of give to him, as, and we think that it's, it's a gift. It's not a gift. It's already his to begin with. He has literally let us borrow everything that we have. Every car, everything in your house, your house, your health, your breath. And your money. And he tells us, return what is mine of the tithe. You see, when you don't give back to someone what is theirs, you're stealing from them. And when you steal from God, you put yourself under a curse. In Haggai chapter 1, it says, You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is the beginning of what it feels like to be under this idea of, of, of a curse. You, you do a lot of chopping, but there ain't no wood chips flying. You try and you try and you try. But doesn't, you can't seem to get ahead. You're never really comfortable. You're never really at peace. And yes, things might seem okay for a while, but then you just kind of ebb and flow. Sometimes it feels as if the entire world is under a curse. Well, could it be that you are robbing from God? God is calling his people to accounts. You're being stingy towards me? You're, you're, you're being selfish towards me? What are, you, what are you thinking? If I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob... Are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. 
But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. You know, I kind of love the way he starts in all of this. He says, man, you've been off course for a long time. You've not kept my decrees, but yet he still calls them my people. You're my people, and I believe that's what the Lord still calls us today. We are still his people, and he longs for us to return back to him. In the beginning of Malachi, he says, man, I, you, you say it, I don't love you, but I do love you. I love you more than you can imagine. And it's, a no, it's with a no matter what love. It's always been there, and it will always be there. Even in our moments, even our lowest moments of disobedience or, or indifference or arrogance, the love of God doesn't change for his people. It will never change for his people. It's all-encompassing, and it's always perfect. But he continues to call us back. He continues to call these people back. Return to me. But here, and I think sometimes us, we... We don't think we really need to do anything. We're kind of just going along, taking it kind of as it comes. We've, we seem, we feel pretty innocent. We're not as bad as those people. So there's this innocence about what we're doing. And besides, what, what more does God really want from me? I mean, really, this whole, he, 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 I mean, he wants my money. Don't all churches, that's all they talk about is money. Well, that's just not true. We haven't talked about it in three years. See, their story is our story, and, and our story is their story. And when we're confronted with our lives before the Lord, our sin can put us into a, a spiritual stupor. Even when we discern our, our true spiritual health, even when the truth is put in front of us, sometimes we just get indifferent to it and just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, whatever. God's grace, God loves me, so I'll just forget about that one. How can a person rob from God? He's created everything. He sustains everything. He's sovereign over everything. As Malachi writes and he addresses the people, well, they, they were offering the Lord just lame sacrifices, what they called sacrifices. They were just throwing stuff on the fire, and it wasn't really sacrificial in any way. They were breaking the covenant of marriage. They were defrauding the helpless. And now God makes a very direct charge against them. You are not bringing the whole tithe into my storehouse. You're holding back. You're keeping it for yourselves. If God has allowed us to earn everything that we earn, then we're to return to him what he has asked us to return to him. But let's be realistic. All these good biblical-type principles... I mean, if we just look at what's going on here in the time that, that Malachi is addressing the people, they were in some rough economic times. But it seems like God doesn't even care. They, had, they, they were going through tough times. They were suffering from drought. The crops were failing. The locusts were eating everything. The vineyards were not healthy, so they weren't producing grapes, and they weren't producing wine. The olive trees were, were not bringing the olives that were needed to make olive oil. These were key elements to their economy. They're falling on hard times, and God is calling them out saying, 
give back to me what is mine. Maybe, in our, you know, if they live today, maybe the gas prices were kind of high and home values were plunging and unemployment and people were losing their jobs and the cost of health insurance was skyrocketing and prescription drug prices were, were up there. They got bills to pay, you know, kids are going off to college. We have, we have, you know, this broke in the house. And so we have all of these things that are taking place. And when you believe that you have a little, then you're trying to hold on to what little that you believe you have. But see, here's the problem. When you hold back, you do so at the, at the expense of responding to God. Responding to his love that he has shown you. You hold tight, it shows that you don't trust him. And that you lack a certain amount of love toward him. Second Corinthians, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Deuteronomy 15, that we're to give with open hands and an open hearts. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about not being anxious for, for anything, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you're going to wear. God knows we need all of that stuff, and he gives good things to his people. We're called to trust in the God who loves us, and we are known by, we're called to trust in the God who we love, that we are trusting that we are precious in his sight, that he will not abandon us. Psalm 37 says that I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You see, this holding back the tithe is really a posture of our heart that we don't trust God for everything. But this is what he says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Yeah, I wonder as we, as the church, as the the Christian conservatives blame politics for the state of the world that it's in. I wonder if the church needs to take some responsibility in that. What if, what if we're not living into trusting God completely? If 97% of Western Christians don't tithe? He says, bring the whole thing in, not 2%, not 5%, not 9.5%. The whole thing. And if you study this verse, and if you look into the scholarship, if you look into the commentaries, the vast number, the majority will tell you that for the Christian today, that this storehouse is the church. The church where, where people gather, where the community gathers, where we worship together, where lives begin to be changed. The place where, this is the place where God says, bring the whole tithe. God uses money to test us. But then he goes, okay, but you can test me in this. You can test me. We get to test God. If you look at the number 10 in the scripture, the number 10 is, is often associated with, with testing. Revelations 2, chapter 10, it says that the devil put a certain amount of people in prison for 10 days to, to test them. Now, I'm going to give you a little test. How many 
How many times did God test Pharaoh's heart with plagues in the Old Testament? Ten. Very good. In the New Testament, how many virgins were tested to see if they were faithful and prepared? Ten. Very good. In the New Testament, how many disciples were there? Twelve. I was just testing you. I told you it was going to be a test. God tests us with this principle of returning to him what is his, the tithe. And he invites us to test him back. Will you trust me? Will you, sur- will you really surrender to me? Will you follow me? And he says, go ahead, prove me. Try it out. Give it a shot. Put me to the test. This is a display of God's abundant grace and love for us. He says, respond in love to my love. And, and, and watch me open the, the windows of heaven and pour into you. I will pour down rain. I'll get rid of the locusts. I'll make sure your vineyards are healthy. See, Judah is suffering the consequence of breaking covenant with God. Judah is suffering the consequence of holding back the tithe and not trusting God. He says, return to me. I will return to you. Now, we have to make sure we're not misreading this text at all because I've heard way too many a pastor kind of preach this and they preach it as a quick, a get quick rich scheme. Like God saying, okay, you throw in five bucks, I'll give you 50. And, and if you throw in 10, that, that's, that's good for a C notes. This is not a tit for tat with God. This is not, hey God, let's make a deal. This is not going through the casino of the heavens and throwing down some money on the right number. It's not legalistic. It's not automatic. I don't even believe it's a materialistic deal that God is trying to make with us. I found this guy, I read this article once, that this guy sued his church for $800 because he did not receive the blessing that the pastor said he was going to get. See, our gifts... Our returning back to God is the pouring out of our life before him. It's the pouring out of love. It's it's the pouring out of all of us. Returning to him what is already his. It's presenting ourselves, all of ourselves, as a living sacrifice to him. Because he is worthy and he is calling us to do this, to trust in him. And see, when we come with that posture of our heart, God opens the windows of heaven and pours out his blessing. And what that means is he pours out grace into our lives, new and abundant mercy every morning. We see the glory of God in all of creation and all of the mundane parts of our lives. And yes, there may be physical blessing in that also, but it goes just way beyond that. It goes way beyond just stuff and things and more money. The abundance of grace is given to us, and we begin to walk in the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. How can we expect to walk in the fruit of the Spirit if we have put ourselves under a curse by robbing from God? We find peace. We find that we're released from guilt and dread. 
we come before God and recognize that everything is his. Everything is his. Even, even my wallet is his. And it's for the glory of the Lord. We are loved because God loves all people. And it's desire to open up the windows of heaven and bless all people. And then in return, that we would be a blessing to the world, that the church would be a blessing to the world, that we would be salt and we would be light. God can use his church only when we, when we surrender our whole selves to him and allow him everything, access to everything. That we would give him our heart and our soul that we would give him our entire lives. John Wesley said, he said, give me a hundred men that love the Lord with all their hearts and fear only sin, and I will move the world. Could you imagine a church that loves the Lord with all their heart and fears only sin? We would move the world. Mere mortals robbing from God. You know, being stingy towards the Lord pushes against the very nature of, of who we've been created to be. We receive so much, and yet, you know, if, if you look at other religions, especially small tribal religions, they, they, they live in these very small communities, and they all have, worship these gods. They make these gods out of wood and stone, and they carve things out. And, and it's amazing to me how devoted how devoted they are to these, these wooden images, how they sacrifice to these wooden images. And, and there's just so much more devotion to something that is not God in these small little tribal areas. And how can we, Christian, how can we come before the one true God with anything less? How can we come before God with, with our own selfishness and lack of trust that he is in charge in over all things? Our God, our creator, our sustainer, who orders the world, who gives us each beat of our heart every moment of the day, who allows us to take a breath, every breath that we take, who gave us the sun, that he would he would forgive our sin because of the cross, our God, and we rob him. Ingratitude toward God is probably one of the most stubborn and callous positions, postures of the human heart. Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about that. He says, God will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. Those who steal from God they, they kind of are creating their very own customized reward. And so Malachi talks about the tithe, giving back to God in direct proportion what God has given us, returning to him what is already his. The tithe was part of the, of the Jewish Old Testament law. <gasps> Did he say law? Oh, balding pastor, I thought we were no longer under the law. Jesus has come. He has freed us from the law. And as I read the New Testament, oh, balding one, there is no real teaching on this idea of tithe, this 10% bar that you speak so much of for the last 20 minutes. And I will tell you, yes, there is some truth in that, uh, that thinking, but it's wrong. 
If you read the New Testament, you see that Jesus is constantly talking about giving and giving, sacrificial giving in response to God. And yes, he might not have taught the principle of tithing, 10%, but he does mention it in Matthew. This is the words of Jesus. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus isn't saying it's one or the other. Jesus says, yes, you, you, you should be tithing. You should be giving in this way, trusting God in this way. But you also need to practice things like mercy. You also need to practice things like justice and faithfulness. He's not saying don't. He's saying in addition to. So, okay, is this whole tithing thing just about the Old Testament, or should we tithe, or are we under the law, are we freed from the law? How are we supposed to, how are we supposed to engage this in 2015? Thanks for asking. The commandments of the Old Testament were given to Israel as examples of what it means to love and to trust God. What it means to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And command after command, it maps out what it looks like to love God and to trust Him every day. You know, show mercy to those who are helpless. Be honest in your business dealings. Be just in your courts of law. Um, Take care of creation. Honor God as sovereign over all things. Worship Him only. And recognize that everything belongs to Him in the tithe. This is kind of the Old Testament principle. This is kind of how God has fleshed it out under the Old Testament to begin to understand what it means to love, to serve, to surrender to God. But then Jesus comes on the scene and things begin to change. Jesus, he pushes things a lot deeper. He pushes things a lot further. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And what does that mean? Well, a tithe for Jesus was, that's, that's minimum. That's a baseline start right there. In fact, the entire law is a baseline for how we're to live our lives. The Old Testament said, don't murder. Jesus said, man, if you're even mad at a brother or sister, you've committed murder in your hearts. The Old Testament said, don't commit adultery. What did Jesus teach? If it, even if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your hearts. He said, the Old Testament said, eye for an eye, which, which really means, listen, if somebody hurts you, you can't hurt them worse. You can only hurt them up to the same level that they've hurt you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What did Jesus teach? Don't even resist an evil person. If somebody punches you in the mouth on the right side, give them the left side to punch. The Old Testament teaches, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, or the Old Testament taught, tithe. Jesus said, live openly and freely and generously with your entire life. Giving to those who are in need. Coming alongside those. He even told one guy, you got lots of money, bud. But listen, sell everything, give it to the poor, then follow me. He speaks right to the heart. Right to the heart. The law is just a bare minimum for Jesus. It's a starting point. So I want to encourage our church to begin to wrestle with these ideas. 
that you would speak to God, allow conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Thank you for those who give. Whatever you give, thank you. But are you living into what God is calling you? Are you living in to what God has called us, what Jesus has shown us? I want to read to you something out of Mere Christianity written by C.S. Lewis. I want to close with this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than you can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your love for us, even in those places in our lives where we push back, we dig our heels in, where we are just disobedient. Father, I pray that you would be, continue to be our grace, that you would be continually wooing your church into a deeper, more intimate relationship with you, deeper places of surrender, deeper places of giving, deeper places of love for you and for the world around us. Stand before you in awe. Help us to surrender those areas of our lives where we hold tight fists clenched. We love you and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love you guys and I will see you next week.